Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. Elizabeth Bishop has a poem about an artifact from an ancient, long-lost civilization. It's titled, Filling Station. For all of you people younger than I am, a filling station is what they used to call gas stations back when someone in a uniform would scurry out to fill up your tank and check the engine oil while you waited in the comfort of your probably unair-conditioned vehicle. A lost civilization indeed, right? Well, the filling station poem... The filling station in the poem is a very dirty one. There's the father in an oil-soaked monkey suit that cuts him under the arms and several quick and saucy and greasy sons. The poet wonders whether the family actually lives at the filling station, seeing a grimy dog on a grease-impregnated wicker sofa and some comic books lying upon a big, dim, doily, draping a tabaret beside a big hirsute begonia. Here's how the poem ends. Why the extraneous plant? Why the tabaret? Why, oh why, the doily? Embroidered in daisy stitch with with marguerites, I think, and heavy with gray crochet. Somebody embroidered the doily. Somebody waters the plant, or oils it may be. Somebody arranges the rows of cans so that they softly say, so, 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 so to high-strung automobiles. Somebody loves us all. Somebody loves us all. That's what the embroidered doily, the watered plant, the quarts of oil arranged just so seem to say. Evidence that we're loved, it can show up in the simplest attention paid to the most ordinary kinds of things, can't it? Well, that might sound like a strange insight to begin with as we spend a few minutes with a passage from the Gospel of John. Of the four Gospels, John seems the least interested in the ordinary, wouldn't you agree? John doesn't begin his Gospel with the baptism in the wilderness or an announcement to an old couple about a birth. John has our heads swirling back at the beginning of time. In the beginning was the Word, he tells us, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John isn't the gospel of the Sermon on the Mount. It's the one in which Jesus says things like, those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them. It's not the gospel where Jesus sweats and frets in the garden before his death and asks that this cup pass from him. In John, when the soldiers come to that garden with torches and weapons and say they're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, he says, I am he, and they collapse into a heap at the sound of his great I am. This wild, fabulous nature of John can make it less immediately appealing to a lot of modern folk. It is fabulous, and it is strange. But the strangest thing about John may be that after the resurrection is when things seem to get weirdly ordinary. Mary Magdalene, she was the first to see the risen Christ on Sunday morning, but she mistakes him. Do you remember this? She mistakes him for a gardener. 
It's as if the resurrected Jesus is too ordinary to notice. Nothing like that guy who could make a detachment of soldiers fall over with the word. Don't get me wrong, things are still very weird. The risen Christ can appear in locked rooms, but, but when he does, he helps Thomas along in his belief by showing him the wounds in his hands and his side. He says, it's okay, Thomas. You can touch me if that's what you need to believe. And then in today's reading, the disciples have just had a lousy night fishing on the Sea of Tiberias. Jesus is standing there on the beach at daybreak, telling them to throw their nets over the other side of the boat. And when they do, they can barely contain the fish. Oh, and it's not just a whole lot of fish, is it? It's 153 fish. Did you catch that detail? For some reason, there's this curiously specific number that's it's not a factor of 7 or 12 or 40 or any of the Bible's favorite numbers. Nothing obviously symbolic, just, just a detail in a world of countable things that makes the image of all those silvery bellies flopping and fla flashing in the sun all the more vivid to us, doesn't it? This is a world we recognize even 2,000 years later. A world we can actually conjure up in a moment. And next thing we know, there's a charcoal fire on the shore with fish on it and bread. And Jesus does not say, I am the bread of life. He says, let's have some breakfast. The disciples, well, they don't quite know what to say. What are they to make of this? Everything is weird here because, because it's all so ordinary. Is this what resurrection looks like? Is this how divine love shows up in our lives? Fish cooked on a charcoal fire for breakfast. It's almost as if John was setting us up with that grand prologue about the Word being with God in the beginning. Luke is the Gospel who ends with the story of Jesus ascending up into the clouds. That's how John should have ended, right? Jesus returning to the place where the Word was from all eternity, but... But no, he doesn't. John ends down here. On a beach we can see, beside fish we can smell, a fire we can smell, and a pile of fish somebody has somehow counted. He ends with Jesus turning to Simon Peter, the friend who denied him three times. And he asks him three times, Do you love me? Do you love me? Simon, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Sometimes evidence that we are loved shows up in the simplest of attention, paid to the most ordinary kinds of things, doesn't it? Somebody loves us all. And he wants us to pass that love along in this world of ordinary things, even on this resurrection side of Easter. Maybe especially on this resurrection side of Easter. Any love that the Bible might contain, of course, doesn't matter much to the world until it comes into contact with the ordinary particulars of lives like ours. It won't surprise many of you that I've had the report from a feasibility study of all things on my mind all week. Mika Vandersall and Aaron Weber-Johnson presented their findings at our 915 forum. 
What I've loved about this process is the way it involves some aspects of our common life that are objective and countable, like survey response rates, project priorities, and yes, dollars. But since Mika and Aaron and their team understand church, they translated all those more quantifiable things into the even more important realms of hopefulness and trust and what faithfulness to Calvary's mission to make God's love visible might look like in this particular place, in this particular time. And what I've loved about this process of imagining our, how our buildings and block might evolve to better serve our mission is that that process includes the higher level values that you've articulated, such as, and these are the words you used most to describe Calvary, community, welcoming, historic, outreach, love, downtown, inclusive, music, open, caring, acceptance. But all those lovely values, they have to end up down here on the ordinary end of life to matter. We kind of hope they end up one day in the forms of entrances people can actually find and pews space for human bodies. Hallways you don't have to drop breadcrumbs to find your way back out of. We hope they show up as spaces where all sorts of people can feed and clothe and sing and learn and pray and eat and worship and encounter one another in all the ways a Christian community planted right here in downtown Memphis might be called to do in the years to come. The project's about making love visible. It's about making love specific and tangible and real because one thing Jesus showed us over and over again is that love that doesn't make it its way into what's real, into what's ordinary, into embodied life on earth, isn't love at all. At least it's not the love of God. I should probably say clearly here that Jesus did not tell me when the two of us were out fishing the other day that he wants Calvary to have a capital campaign and you to give generously to it. It would have been ever so helpful if he had. But if the love we see in Jesus is material, embodied, tangible love, we have to have that very love in view whenever we consider the material, embodied, tangible aspects of our common life, don't we? Because what we want is for people to see and experience the love of Jesus here in ways that are as visible as 153 fish and a charcoal fire when they come to Calvary. People do have that experience here every single day, thanks to your commitment to it, but maybe not thanks to the fact they have to walk across a potholed alley that leads to our beloved maze of hallways and locked doors. Actually, if you can't walk through walls like Jesus, it can be very hard to find your way in here sometimes. Have you noticed that? But what we've heard from you clearly in your words and in what you do is that you want every person who steps onto this block or into these buildings to see things arranged in ways that say they are welcome here, that they are seen, that they matter here, that this is a place of inclusion and acceptance, and prayer and beauty and joy, not one of barriers and obstructions. Friends, even back in the wild old Gospel of John, redeeming love comes fully alive not only in the realm of the eternal word,
but in the ordinary material of everyday life. The question the risen Christ still presses upon you and me, at home, at work, in our everyday relationships and tasks and priorities and ministries, and in our life as a Christian community, trying to live out the way of Jesus in this city, in which life is hard and full of too many barriers and obstacles for too many of its people. The question Jesus still presses upon us all in the concrete particulars of our lives is when a stranger or when a friend shows up here in this place, will she see, even in the ways we've arranged things in anticipation for someone like her, evidence that somebody cares? Maybe even that somebody loves her. Maybe even simple physical expressions in their own small rights of that deeper truth that somebody loves us all. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.